I don't think he's actually ever cut anybody's hair except maybe his own. He does describe himself as a toupee model, so I'm not sure how that would work. But the wealthy barber is wealthy. He's just not a barber. His name is David Chilton. He's with us. Hi, David. Hey, nice to hear from you. And uh, no, you know what's really funny about the toupee? When I was on Dragon's Den, if you went on to Google and you punched in, does Dave Chilton, it automatically finished, wear a toupee. So, so many people are asking, that's how good my hair is. The whole country thinks I have a toupee. It's good. I like it. But it is your real hair, just for clarification. It's my real hair and it's never been better. (laughs) <laughs> the rest of me is a little shaky, but my hair no, has no, never been better. No, no, you're just a piece of art. That's it. Now, I've been reading <laughs> some of your tweets of late that you were waiting uh, in the hours and days and weeks after the finance minister uh, resigned for your call, but they didn't call you. And you believe they didn't call you, that you were canceled out of the running because your advice has always been spend less than you make. Now, that's right. But I do think in the defense of the prime minister, there is a very good chance he couldn't reach me because I've been getting very weak cell up in Sarnia. (laughs) And so I think there's a chance that he reached out and I just didn't pick up. And therefore the opportunity was lost. Yeah, no kidding aside, I don't think my approach of of living within your means would go particularly well with any government party anywhere in the world. And, (laughs) uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of spending right now. And as we should, obviously, it's a very unusual time. But on that very issue, the kind of spending we're seeing uh, in general, I mean, we're not going to have a big political discussion here, but our governments, and we'll focus on this country particularly, really targeting the money where it's needed. Well, I I think there's certainly been some challenges uh, instituting a lot of these programs, but I must say, I think the move to get them done quickly was the right move. And I think a good perfection, pardon me, would have been the enemy of good, that slowing them down and going through the normal bureaucratic and bureaucratic analysis, et cetera, would have delayed things too much to be a big help. I think we should have made more modifications as we went, though. And we got more data back. We got more learnings from the field. We talked to more people who out there were trying to hire, et cetera. But in general, I think we did better than some countries, frankly, at getting Mm -hmm. into people's hands. What an unusual circumstance. Obviously, this has just been crazy. And I feel so sorry for people. I'm sure we'll talk a bit about this later. But one of the things that's most fascinated me with COVID is how unevenly the pain has been spread out. So you have what has been perceived to be a deep recession, yet all kinds of businesses are thriving. Anything uh, attached to tech is doing very, very well. Anything attached to home ownership, including renovations, pools, fences, all those types of things, doing exceptionally well. But then you look at the hospitality industry, you look at the travel industry, they are devastated by what's happened. And I have so many friends who own restaurants, own hotels, and a lot of them will never recover. So it's really a sad, sad situation. One of the reasons I reached out to you is because you did this Twitter thread at one point. Usually you're just very humorous and talk about your dad and his wise words, as we will in a moment. But the thread that you put out was really focusing on things that have been hit, just this very conversation and things that have grown. And you talked about the real estate market, which is just booming in places like Toronto and Vancouver, and people are changing their lifestyles and making the the cabin or the cottage main place and getting like it's crazy what people are thinking 
I've never seen anything like it. There's not an expert in the world who would have predicted in March when we first went to lockdown, the real estate was about to take off. And I think that the work from home movement has meant people want more space in some instances. There's less travel and people are putting money into their homes. Obviously, interest rates are down even lower. And that's helped the real estate market in a number of ways. It's just been unbelievable. And I see the budgets that people are putting into home renovations now. And I joked online, but there's a lot of truth to it. Hockey is no longer Canada's national pastime. Real estate is. And you look at <laughs> exactly. companies that are putting in fences and they're putting in decks. They can't keep up. I talked to a couple of people at pool companies and they're booking two years out, two years out for people to get a swimming pool. They've come back into Vogue. So yeah, and it's not just the Vancouver and Toronto markets that of course we've seen do exceptionally well on the pricing front for a long time now. Kitchener Waterloo, I'm down in Sarnia, which has been a relatively slow market, slow population growth market. Things are as wild here as they are in those other areas. You're getting nine, 10, 12 bids on properties. You're seeing properties go for 175, 250,000 over ask, et cetera. It's hard to know what to make of all of this. I think some of it is that parents who are in the lucky position of being able to help out their kids have said, holy smokes, if a pandemic can't slow Canadian real estate, nothing can. You guys are 27, you're 30, you're not in yet. You better get in. We're gonna do whatever we can to help and they're bending over backwards to lend the money for the down payment or to do co-signing or whatever else. In fact, in some instances, they're even taking the mortgage on themselves. So that mm -hmm. has accelerated the demand. It's pulled it forward. And then the point I made on Twitter, and I've made it a couple other interviews, is that I think we're seeing supply constrained, not just by the normal factors. We've got government red tape, et cetera, and some of that's justified, but also we're seeing a lot of older people who traditionally would sell at their age, not selling. And they're not selling for interesting reasons. Number one, they love exactly. having a space big enough for the grandkids to come back to visit. That comes into play way more than economists realize. Economists yeah. love to look at the big picture stuff, but they don't get out and talk to people. And when you talk to a lot of 69-year-olds, they say, we're not selling because we want the grandkids here. We want to put in a pool for the grandkids. But the second reason and they're not selling, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, and, and in the COVID world, keeping family close is new and, yeah. and profound. <laughs> Absolutely. It's made us all rethink that. And then you're seeing a lot of them look at how well the real estate is done, tax-free, obviously, with the principal residence exemption. And they're looking at it saying, where am I going to put the money that can give me these types of returns? So they're holding off on selling. And now you've got a lot of people concerned about going to retirement homes, seniors' homes, and so on and so forth. That's exactly. They want to stay together. at home. I, 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 you know, you know, you can see from the number of requests going in online for information on reverse mortgages that a lot of people right. have said, I'm going to stay here. And if I have to borrow against my home to fund somebody coming in to help me out once every two days, so be it. And so all of these things have come together. And again, they've constricted supply to some extent. Then you have the increased demand because of almost a panic buying. I mean, this is getting pretty frothy and this is the situation you get into. What I'm stunned at though, is again, the amount of money that a lot of people are spending on their rentals. We saw this escalating, but now it's gone wacky. I mean, you're seeing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars going into rentals on a regular basis now. It's no longer just the affluent. It really is a different time right now. And I think, again, some people are pulling money away from travel, pulling money away from other things and saying, I'm going to nest here and I'm going to make it the best it can be. And you mentioned earlier, a lot of people are, are going nuts on the cottage front because they're right. thinking, I may work out of my cottage. 
I may even sell my home at some point if things keep going and just live out of my cottage now that I can work from home. In cottage country, I mean, whether it's the Quarthas, whether it's the Thousand Islands, certainly the Muskokas, we've seen some things happen on the pricing front in the last three months that are a little hard to believe. I live at a lake in Saskatchewan uh, where internet and services have are, are still pretty bad, but I've spent money upgrading the technology so that I can sit there and connect with the Senate or anything else from my cottage, from my cabin, as we call it in Saskatchewan, but looking out on the water. Why wouldn't I? Yeah. No, and you're seeing it happening more and more. Now, that being said, I've really noticed a, a strong trend in the last four to six weeks, I would say, where a lot of the people I'm conversing with are thinking they want to get back to the office a little bit more. Nobody's yeah. talking about going back to their traditional 40 hours a week in the office, but I think there's going to be a blend. The work from home movement, the work from anywhere movement is not going to take over to the point that offices are closed. Let me just tell you, I think this is very interesting, but I'm, I'm the one saying it. So maybe that's why I think it's interesting. <laughs> it's but, always fascinating. Them, yeah, yeah. I, I fascinate myself. <laughs> I always fascinate myself. But you you remember these these co-working spaces were popping up, like WeWorks, right. et cetera. And you could go in and you could take a two-year lease, or you could go in and you could take a one-month lease, you could go in and you could just grab a desk, whatever. And some of those were about to start up in Canada and then COVID hit and they thought, oh my gosh, we're in big trouble. But strangely, with a slightly revised model, they're doing very well. What they're doing is they're going to the marketplace and saying, Let's view it as a timeshare. You can now rent Tuesdays only along with Thursday mornings. And companies are right. saying, wait a second, I like this because I can get my whole team together, let's say a day and a half a week, and they can work from home the rest of the week or meet at coffee shops, whatever. I get the best of all worlds without having to pay the full-time rent. You're going to see a lot more of that. So that kind of timeshare approach where you have certain parts day parts. Not everybody's going to do it, but enough companies will do it. The people offering that model will do well. And I think you're going to see, unfortunately, for the commercial real estate market, a lot of companies take less space. So if they had 200,000 square feet across the country, they're going to drop down to 100,000, knowing that not everybody's going to be there at all times. And you'll have desk sharing and other things come into play. So I don't think, again, work from home is going to take over, but it's going to become a much bigger part of our lives than it has been until COVID. And it'll be interesting to see the fallout of that on commercial real estate. And of course, all the businesses associated with that. So think about some of the mm -hmm. office towers and the variety store in the coffee, in the office tower or the restaurant. Right. Those businesses are all very much threatened. No, those are the kinds of people that are really hurting. I mean, if you've got the coffee franchise or the, the convenience store and you're selling gum and, you know, the, the smaller businesses. And, and you talked about this, too, just the programs haven't really helped those kind of people. And when they go to the bank for some help, a small business, they're the ones least likely uh, to be given the loan or the help. It's true. I mean, it's always difficult boring as a small business. If you're in tech, you can get venture capital, usually equity. There are some venture debt companies out there. But if you're a traditional yeah. business just starting out right now, unless you have friends and family who can fund you the first year or two and fund your initial machine costs and so on and so forth, it's going to be very difficult. It really is now in defense of the banks. That's a high risk area to lend into. Of and course. so I'm not surprised that it's become more difficult. But the one thing I am surprised that especially stateside, but in Canada as well, is that it's been very difficult for companies doing well, even during COVID, to gain access to growth capital. That I'm surprised mm -hmm. at. I think you've seen too many institutions in North America pull in too much on that front. And so you've got, let's say, a franchise owner who's got seven successful franchises, and now he or she wants to add one or two. They've proven they're good operators. The franchise costs have maybe even come down because of COVID. 
they can't gain access to capital in a lot of instances. So hopefully we can address that with some policy changes, getting maybe the BDC more involved, being a tad more aggressive, frankly, on that front, because we need those businesses. We really do. That's where the job creation comes from. That's how you grow the tax base. Obviously, employment's positively impacted by that type of thing. But going back to talking about the people struggling right now, we're all very sympathetic right. and for good reason to the restaurateurs. But what about the poor people who own hotels? Exactly. Remember, their leases and their rent payments are dramatically bigger. Business is down 80, 85% in many instances. And I'm not sure business travel is going to ever come back full bore. Even when there's a vaccine, we're all going to do less. We're going to do less business travel. I'm looking at it now and saying, obviously, I'm going to travel to speak. But the thought yeah. of me flying out to Victoria for a meeting now, I go, you got to be kidding me. I'll use Zoom. It's not as effective. In-person is absolutely better, but it's 80, 85% as effective. And that more than makes up for the hassle factor of getting on a plane and giving up two days. I'll go I've to the odd meeting because... Go ahead. No, I've got lots of people saying that. Why the hell would I get on a plane and go to Japan um, if I don't have to, if I can just meet that person on Zoom? Exactly. And occasionally, obviously, you'll make exceptions. Sometimes the right. first meeting you want to break bread, you want to get to know each other, and you can certainly do a better job of that in person. But a lot of those meetings are going away. You talk to a lot of the big hotels, and they're saying that mm -hmm. their meeting rooms were such a huge part of the revenue, no real cost mm -hmm. associated with that. Those days are gone. Obviously, their wedding business has dropped off the cliff. So this is really tough time for hotel years. And again, I don't know what the bounce back is going to be. I'm sure there are a lot that are technically bankrupt right now but nobody's forcing their hand because the banks don't want the hotel back either. Everybody's trying to see where the dust settles here and trying to figure out where to take it. So, and you know, there's so many little stories that aren't getting enough attention that are really sad. So here's an example. I got a call from a relatively young guy, 30, 35 ish. And he had just loaded up with all kinds of new equipment because he was big in the major conference business on the AV front. Well, there's no major conferences now. And he's got Correct. personal yeah. guarantees on these loans. And all of a sudden he's going, I'm writing checks for $29,000 a month. I don't have it. And so he's yeah. going to end up having to potentially declare bankruptcy. But there's a lot of stories like that. But then again, the flip side, as mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people thriving during COVID. So if you have an online business, this is why Shopify, a very fine company, by the way. I mean, it's a company that Canadians should be proud of because they're offering a very important service. They do it well. And they're really nice people. Like their yeah. executive are really good people that want to be involved in the community. They built a good culture, but they were very fortunate that COVID hit and that they pulled future demand forward. Everybody had to get it right now. They had to have an online presence if they were a retailer. And then because they do a good job, the word of mouth flourished. Now all of a sudden we've got this explosive success and it's exciting to see. And I have a lot of friends and family members who use the Shopify templates. And again, it's a great Canadian success story. One, I, I, there's a couple of things I want to follow up on, just things you've raised. The reverse mortgage uh, in this crazy real estate market and, and people in, into their seniors' years, for obvious reasons, not wanting to go to old folks' homes. Um, is it a good idea? It depends on the circumstances. I will give you good news because of the fact that demographics obviously are going to increase demand and so are some of these issues we've discussed. You will see it become a more competitive space and therefore the interest rate premium over a conventional mortgage will narrow, no question about it. The fees okay. may even disappear and so I think the product will become better. Uh, again, like a lot of people, I'm always cautious about reverse mortgages because I've spent my whole mm -hmm. life saying you have to turn compounding into your best friend and of course the reverse mortgage turns it into your enemy. 
your balance <laughs> is growing each year at the outstanding mortgage rate on a compounding basis. That all being said, for some people, I think it makes some sense. So it's very much on the individual circumstance situation. The product will become better over the years. And again, you're going to see more people doing it. Like I have to admit among my friends, I have a lot of friends in their say mid sixties and they're all saying, I don't really want to leave the house. Mm. You know, this, this whole thing has really changed people's mindset on that. Now, some, are still on the side, I don't want to have to take care of a home and therefore I'll figure out a way. But there are more people now thinking somehow, some way I'm staying in my house than I've ever seen before. And the other issue that we see with all the renovations, I've got friends at the lake that are going through this, they can't get the wood. They can't oh. get the supplies. It's crazy. I mean, this is the true inflation bottleneck in that during COVID, a lot of the things weren't being built. So you had constrained supply. And then, of course, now this explosion in demand has created much higher prices and also shortages. And on the shortages front, uh, deck wood, for example, is almost impossible mm-hmm. to find. Windows are running months and months and months behind. So, yeah, we're yep. seeing a lot of different challenges there. It's great for the tradespeople. I mean, are they ever doing right. well? I mean, I've running into a few lately who have said, Dave, I'm basically double charged and telling people I'm double charging and they're saying, Great, see you tomorrow. Yeah, they don't they don't care. They, Please just come and, and build a new spare room. Well, exactly. And and the timing too, like you know, you think about if you're going in and doing the electric work and if you can't get there for a month, their entire project is delayed. So if your work should have cost normally three thousand dollars, now you're saying, Hey, I'm gonna charge you five. Well, there's some sense to the person saying, Great. I'll pay you the 5C tomorrow because they're getting their project back on schedule. So the tradespeople, obviously, in the home renovation business are doing spectacularly well right now. I mean, you talk to some of the companies out there in the decking and fencing space, and if they can get the wood, they're just killing it. And uh, good for them. I mean, a lot of those people are exceptionally hardworking. You homeschooled your children. Is that true? I did three years of my son. My daughter left after one year, just shaking her head, <laughs> thinking I'm never hanging around my dad this much again. But my son and I did three years together and it was very impactful. I enjoyed it immensely, but it's a unique experience. I mean, I can see why some people struggle with it. You're talking about one-on-one. Well, this you- is what we're doing in the COVID world. There's going to be literally thousands of Canadian families trying to do this. No question. And you're going to see homeschooling pick up for other reasons too. I mean, we've just got such great technology now that a lot of people are going to opt out of the public school system, a system I came through and enjoyed immensely. And I have a lot of friends who are wonderful teachers, but homeschooling is picking up momentum even without COVID. But yes, that's accelerated. Although funnily enough, of course, a lot of people forced to do it through COVID hated doing it. And for good mm-hmm. reason, there's a lot of challenges uh, doing it, but the technology makes it easier. I actually quite enjoyed it. And my son went back in grade eight because he wanted to play sports. But he, uh, I, I enjoyed it and probably would have stuck with it for a couple more years. And, we, and I think it deepened our relationship, which was already good. And we still laugh about it now, looking back. It was a long time ago and remembering all the different things we did together. And it was a fun experience in my life. Why did you do it? You know, I, I thought Scott maybe needed a change and he loved sports and got a lot of social interaction through playing at that point, double uh, A mm-hmm. hockey and triple A baseball. And he felt, let's give it a shot. And then when the first year went as well as it did, we just kind of stuck with it. We both liked it. And uh, again, it went very well. It certainly wasn't any kind of disenchantment with the public school system right. because I, again, I enjoyed my experience immensely. And my father was a high school principal and, and a lot of my best friends are teachers. So that wasn't it at all. It was just try something new. And when it worked, we stuck with it. The, I still I still tell him that I was the best teacher he ever had, but he doesn't agree. 
He said he ranks me in the top hundred, though. Top hundred, I think that's in the top hundred. Okay, well, there you're still good, and (laughs) and you're still in the uh, well, the top. You've got the wealthy barber, which you wrote in 1989, is still a bestseller. Yeah, it's amazing that it's kept going. I mean, there's no way I could have imagined 30 years ago that the brand would stay as strong as it has and the book kept selling and the second book did incredibly well. And it's funny because occasionally in an interview, people say, Dave, are you just going to milk this thing for the rest yeah. of your life? And I say that it pretty much is the plan. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's been a lot of fun and there's always need for financial advice. And because I tend to use a lot of humor and take the intimidation out in a more conversational than charts and graphs, there's a certain part of the marketplace that appeals to that all being said, since I launched book number two, the wealthy barber returns, Back about 10 years ago, I don't really do much in the world of finance. I give the odd speech there, but I'm more about small business now. And I've invested in a lot of small companies. I've started a couple recently. I'm now helping people to sell their businesses and enjoying that immensely. And it's the small business space that really excites me and always has. I've been an entrepreneur since age 18. I think it's a vital part of the Canadian economy, something that frankly, most politicians don't have a good sense for and how it really works, how difficult it is. Uh, It's just such a challenging marketplace to be responsible for payroll, to be fighting off competition, the hours involved, et cetera. And I really gravitate to the people who want to take all those challenges on. So I've, I've enjoyed the last decade of my career immensely. I've been very lucky. I mean, you and I've known each other forever and I've never really gotten involved in anything I haven't loved doing. Even things that haven't worked out very well. I look back at quite fondly. So I've been a very lucky guy in my life in general and in my career specifically. I remember turning on the television one night. I think I sent you an email at the time and there you were standing beside a hefty shovel moving snow, uh, some <laughs> product that you had just decided to back that it's, it, it doesn't always have to be the big vision thing. It's no, about that something was a, that by, people I, need. By the way, I, I charge nothing for that commercial because the <laughs> entrepreneur was uh, such a great guy. And he'd been in a car accident 25 years earlier, hit by a drunk driver and lived a life of debilitating pain. And so Home mm-hmm. Hardware partners with us on that. And I did the commercial for free and the half became a huge uh, product success and, and a lot of fun. And no, it's good. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, but when I first met you, it's because you'd seen me on another TV show. And then someone, somebody from your production staff back way back in the old days said, get him to come on. Yes. And that's when I used to do all those interviews. And I, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we've stayed close over the years. And, uh, you know, we've both been pretty lucky. It's a great country to be in. All countries the, need work. We're all works in progress. But I'd still rather be in Canada than anywhere else. The other thing we really share, I think, is love of family. Like My mom and dad created me. They gave me the advice. They are not just parents. They were not just parents. They're mentors. And I know you feel that way about your late mother and your dad, who you still write about regularly on Twitter and I'm sure other places as well. He sounds like a great guy. Yeah, I was so lucky. I mean, I had fantastic parents. I really did. Um, both wise. My dad's very funny. And they've been huge parts of my life. And maybe more importantly, they've been huge parts of my kids' lives. Yeah. And my niece and nephew as well, setting great examples. My father's a person who really believes you lead by example. In fact, really, he believes that's the only way to lead. Mm-hmm. And so he was always doing the right thing. And we talked about a lot of interesting things growing up and things that later in life come back to me. And I think, boy, that was sharper than I realized at the time. I remember when I was about maybe 13, 14 years old, my dad said to me once, you um, and all people have to marry somebody of, an, of a similar energy level. He said, it's not true. You have to have a lot in common, but you have to marry somebody of a uh, similar energy level or you'll be in trouble. 
And I think back to the relationships I've seen where one person's been ultra high energy and another one's been low and it never works. That is amazing. And so I think he has yeah, a lot that's of, very insightful. Yeah, he has a lot of things like that. I'll tell you a quick story about him that you'll laugh at. Yeah. He, my father believes that curiosity is the key to happiness. And that if you have a curious mind, you're never lonely and you're never bored. You're just constantly <laughs> going to be driving to grow and to learn. So when we're young kids, he would take us to the Kitchener Public Library, he'd go in there and he'd say, walk down that aisle 10 paces and then look to your left and whatever book is on the shelf, you have to read it for half an hour. So you didn't get to book, pick a book. Randomly, you had to go get one and start reading it because he wanted you to get exposed to a lot of areas. But I was saying one day, I'm sitting at a table, I'm like 10 years old, and there's eight people around the table, and I'm reading a book on how to deal with midlife menopause. This is not normal <laughs> for a 10-year-old boy. But that's my dad. Or he'd take you somewhere and he'd say, you need to ask 10 questions about that building, that factory. And it would make you think. And I think that fostering curiosity in your kids is probably the biggest favor you can do them. I, I really believe that. And my mother had a very strong sense of community. She was constantly doing things on the volunteer front and we've picked up on that. So I, I was blessed. I mean, you really couldn't screw up having the parents I have. My sister tried yeah. to prove that statement wrong, but even she rose above that <laughs> and ended up becoming an outstanding person. She's she's going to phone you when she hears this, you know. Oh yeah, for sure she is. She's used <laughs> to the abuse on radio. I'm actually my sister's biggest fan. She's a, I know a great you talent. And my sister, but, by the way, pardon me, my father, by the way, is still uh, doing exceptionally well. He's 87. He made me laugh about a month ago. He says to me at dinner, I'm quite stiff today. It's about six o'clock. And I said, well, that's not like you. And he said, yeah, I drove to Toronto and back this afternoon. Then I went and hit some golf balls in the range with Scott. That's my son. He said, then Courtney and I went for a walk. I said, you're 87. No wonder you're stiff. You're in the car for four hours. Then you're hitting golf balls and going for a walk. But that's my father. He's just relentless. He always keeps moving. You know, you can learn so much from him. But I think one of the things I like most is he still views himself as a work in progress. And he views himself as having an obligation to improve. So he's still trying to get better knowledge of the languages. He already speaks well. He's still reading about world events. He's still trying to help other people. He never stops trying to grow. And I yeah. think that's why he's been such a happy person. Well, and and I think that in it influences, but it also infects everything you do. It's, it's, it's not about the great big idea that's going to make you a multi-billionaire. It's about doing the work. It's about the execution, putting your heart into something, whether it's, as you say, with the, the shovel project, yeah. all of those things. It's about that community that you got from your mother and about your dad saying, be curious, keep doing it. Use that high energy level. No, I agree. And, and how lucky uh, was I to be born with a high energy level and those parents? I mean, again, you don't really realize that, that you are lucky to be born with the energy until later in life. And you think, wow, exactly. like, I, I can still I can still go like 14, 15 hours a day. And I've never had a sip of coffee in my life. Really? That's still true? No, I've never had a sip of coffee. and Yeah. And I've never had a sip of wine either. Come on. That's, no, never had a sip of either. I don't drink at all. I don't smoke. I don't do any drugs. Nothing. You know, I, I, I think maybe that's why I'm uh, such an odd person. And have such a high energy level. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do a lot of Diet Pepsi, though, and I love it. <laughs> oh, my God. It's good to talk to you, David. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Stay in touch. Bye-bye now. <laughs> 